welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Liz Burrow as my guest here on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Liz is a 2020 LinkedIn top voice, leader in workplace strategy and design research, and former vice president at WeWork. She has worked with both Fortune 100 companies and fast-growing startups spanning the technology, finance, media, and creative sectors. Whether improving one meeting or a global product or a guideline, her passion is challenging the status quo, bringing strategy to life, and helping businesses thrive. She is an expert facilitator, communicator, and educator, frequently writing and speaking on design research and the future of work. Liz has extensive experience teaching and leading workshops and has developed curricula for students and executives, designers and non-designers, with a special interest in getting people to work outside their own discipline and comfort zone. Liz has published in the Harvard Business Review. She is a visiting speaker at MIT, Harvard Business School, University of Michigan. She is also a visiting professor in design thinking at Cornell University, Parsons School of Design, and the University of Minnesota. In 2020, she founded Thinky Space, an insights and innovation practice that helps clients make space for thinking more creatively and collaboratively. Her clients include Salesforce, Heinz, and the National Gallery of the Arts. Liz, thank you for taking the time to be on my podcast. My pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me. So let's get right into it. I love to ask this kind of uh, question uh, right in the beginning. If you had to pick one thing uh, that annoys you about architects or designers, what would that be? Well, I don't want to. I don't want to poo-poo architects or designers, but I think, I mean, the real thing that irks me about the profession is the education, um, because I think you know that's the chance to sculpt people into the right mindset. And I think the education is still focused on uh, the the form and the and I mean responsibly like delivering safely you know a technically well built building, but some of the, the I wish we could add in courses that focus more on user research, um, user experience. Uh, sociology, economics, statistics, things that help us understand data um, and human dynamics and people, because really our clients are people, not space. Mm. Um, you know, so I think that's, I, I, I don't want to poo-poo designers themselves, <laughs> but I think sometimes they get led astray in their education. I, I would agree. And it's something that's, you know, kind of come up as the education process in this on this podcast multiple times, this, you know, emphasis on form making and the actual architecture itself, not that there's anything in particular wrong with that, but that you're missing that whole other side of things, you know, the actual people. 
mm-hmm. and how they use the space, why they use the space. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, we're going to get into kind of talking about work and why people come to work and the future of work. And, and mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to to this conversation. And But before we do that, um, you know, what got you interested in design and ultimately, you know, how people work and how they use space? Well, my dad's an architect. Uh, so I grew up around that and I, I thought everyone, you know, like study, went to open houses on the weekend for fun to like (laughs) peer into other people's lives and went to buildings on vacations. And, um, so I think that was deeply ingrained. And my mom is a, um, was a, a, a nurse and specialized in mental health. And, um, and I think that's probably the other side of the coin, which is the study of people and what makes people tick and all of our neuroses, <laughs> and, um, you know, how really how shape, you know, how buildings can, can shape us and how we shape buildings. Um, the, the famous quote by Churchill on that, but I think the, um, my dad always says, I never, I never encourage you to go into architecture. You did that all on your own. And I, I, I kind of was often pushing myself in and out of the discipline. So um, I wasn't even sure I wanted to be an architect to begin with, which is why I, uh, my first job out of school was designing theme parks because I had this real interest in the performing arts and theater and set design, and I was trying to mash those two things together. But I think what I was really trying to do is to say to myself, I think there's something really interesting just watching how people behave and people perform um, and the interactions between them and like how we set the stage for that, like that can really influence um, if people are having a great time or if people feel like they're kind of working against the environment. So I think I've, you know, I've, I've loved design. I love the arts. Um, it felt like, a the right thing to get into. And I, and I think just finding my own path in it has been, I love working with the clients and the people and talking about the big ideas and making sure that it feels right. And it's delivering on a purpose. I'm not good at, uh, technical <laughs> building skills and how to, you know, things come together and meet in the corner and making sure that the building doesn't leak. (laughs) (laughs) So I think through kind of like natural selection, I found my way into this niche within the discipline. Um, And I think uh, there's all different kinds of design research, but a lot of, we spend a lot of our time at work. And so a lot of companies are really trying to understand how to deliver the best experience at work. And so um I, I thought, you know, that's a really big kind of question mark or or problem to solve. So I wanted to jump into that aspect of design research, you know, if, and, and also there's a lot of jobs in that part of the Mm. the market, to be honest. I love that your, your dad dragged you around uh, on vacations, (laughs) looking at, at architecture. I did that uh, as a kid, even. Um, So I always wanted to be an architect as a kid to my parents. My parents were not architects, but my brother and we, you know, no matter where we were, I would find a building we'd have to go see for whatever reason. I looking back at old pictures, I saw there was a picture. We went to go see some Gary building, obscure building. Um, 
I think has actually been torn down since. That's how obscure it is, that they didn't keep a Gary building around. And there's a picture of me in front of it, and my brother is laying on the concrete, like just so bored. He's like a little kid just laying there. (laughs) I think, oh my God, I tortured him. But I think, you know, I do think when you're, I mean, at any age, but especially when I was young and even, you know, out on my own, building vacations and experiences around like buildings as a destination was a really nice a kind of um agenda to have you know it's like let's go let's go have like a journey but like we were going to go look at this building you yeah. know i i did 3 months by myself in europe in the winter doing that and it was you know i, I was like okay now i've seen every building i want to see but it's <laughs> I think there's something really nice about that, like a way to explore the world. Yep, I agree. But yeah. <laughs> it gives you a, an end destination and along the way you find a, find a different path there too. So Yeah. Um, so tell us just a little bit about your education because you're, you're very well educated and I want the audience to get a sense of that and then we'll talk some, uh, some workplace. Yes, I have a lot of architecture education. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I did my undergrad at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, and uh, it's a it's a great program. Really founded in, um, you know, the craftsmanship and and at the time drawing. And I, you know, I went to school before really when like we still had a computer lab and and a, you know you'd you'd wait ten minutes for something to render, and mm-hmm. there was a payphone in one on one floor of the building and so if someone got a call um the person nearby would pick up the phone and yell like liz your mom's on the phone <laughs> so that's revealing my age <laughs> same thing here, um, so. love that education and uh and then worked for a couple of years um and then thought you know my 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 undergrad is in like a really strong foundation in design and, and aesthetic and craftsmanship and and the arts. And so I'm going to go to MIT. Like my grad school is going to be about like technical skills and digital fabrication because everything had moved along. So I was lucky enough to get into MIT and I, that was also an amazing education. Um, You know, it's a bunch of really smart people walking around doing their thing and uh it took a it took a minute to kind of figure out how to jump in but once you realize that everyone there is incredibly helpful and giving and smart um you have to learn how to ask for help and and how to pull the different expertises together to to kind of deliver on on your passion so um love that experience had a lot of great um moments inside of it. I got to intern at Renzo Piano's office while I was there. Um, I traveled to Japan, uh, you know, traveled all over the world, met a lot of really great people in, you know, in, in the media lab and the structures and engineering. Uh, and, but at the end of it, I, you know, I thought, okay, now I'm going to go out and, um, be an amazing architect and lead large cultural projects, which is what I did. And, and once I was doing that, I thought, you know, I'm not sure I want to make a whole career out of delivering on buildings. Cause I think you're, you're spending all this time, like trying to build an expertise, like your, your deep technical knowledge and just understand a whole industry and, you know, everything about it. And then 
when you start working, you start to understand more about yourself and what makes you tick and, and your own, you know, your own internal clock of like, what makes me happy and how long can I run with something? And I learned, I really like fast paced projects. I can't, I was working on the world trade center pavilion at Snohattan, which was like a five year, (laughs) seven year project. And I thought like, I can't do this. I'm not built for this. So, Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I, you know, I, I love, I love my education. I love, you know, everything I studied. I would love to go back to school, but never write a paper. Um, <laughs> you know, I still have nightmares about that, but yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I was very lucky to get the education I have. So, so when you and I met, we met at HLW and you were working and then ultimately running the workplace strategy, um, yes. department there. Um, you know, I I always had an odd relationship with the workplace strategy group there because I never quite understood what they did until I met you. Oh, that's um, nice. And then, yeah, and I, I felt like we always had a good working relationship and I always loved watching you kind of do your thing. Can you just explain kind of what workplace strategy is? And even I know there's a lot of architects that listen to this podcast and I guarantee they're in the same position as me thinking, eh. Ah, we don't need those workplace strategists. You know, I can just do this kind of thing on my own. Um, you know, so what is it and what, what are some of the methodologies behind it that you kind of bring to the table? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I would love for every architect to, to do what I do. And that's kind of part of my mission is uh, I don't want to be put in a corner to be, you know, highly specialized or like a, um, you know, a locked door of, of skills. The whole idea is like, we should all um, be able to have a mindset of, of more human centered listening and empathy building and, um, you know, envisioning and, and consensus uh, with, with a client. So really at the end of the day, workplace strategy or strategy in general is all the pre-design work Um and if you're really good, you're also saying, you know, I'm what we, what we need to do is make sure that we're really aligned with the client. And what's the whole point of this thing? And the reason that's important to me is because before I got there as 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 my profession, I saw a lot of architecture projects that didn't have that vision mm-hmm. and didn't have that alignment up front. And you could you would slowly watch the project fail through the process over time because you were chipping away at a, you know, like at an idea that didn't have a really strong foundation. And so people are like, we'll push that problem down the line. We'll just put it in value engineering. We'll solve it in CA, or we'll just, you know, people have to live with it in operations Um, or we hand over the key to the client. So it's not our problem if the building doesn't look good after five years or, you know, it doesn't solve the user needs. So, for me, um, it was it was really important to make sure that the client was able to express what they needed, um, and and that they were speaking on half on behalf of true user needs. And so, workplace strategy is is really that concept of working directly with the client and end users on the front end of a project to make sure we understand why we're doing this. We set a vision. We have clear goals and accountability. We've developed principles and building blocks. 
And we have a kind of briefing that we can work with. Uh, and I, I don't want to use the term hand over to the architects because ideally the designers are there in the front of the project too. And so it's a you know, seamless handoff to basically like, here's the principles of why we're designing this project. Here's, you know, here, here's a diagram of what adjacency should look like, the relationships between teams and space. And one of the most important you know, deliverables at the time was the, the space budget or the space program, the quantities of space and the rationale behind it. And so that always was kind of like where rubber hits the road. You can talk about all these like big ideas, but really at the end of the day, the architects are trying to put, you know, configure space and make sure they have the right amount of stuff, which means a lot to the end user, um, especially in, in workplace. So, you know, if you don't have enough meetings, you meeting rooms, you feel it. If yeah. you don't have the, the right kind of desks or desk configuration, you feel it. Um, and so, so that's, uh, that's the front of the, of the work. And then uh, change management is a really big part of it as well. So guiding end users and employees and leaders through that change, that feeling of, of loss and then excitement about something new and making sure that um, people are really bought into it. I, I use the metaphor of um, it's like putting a new, organ in a body and you don't want organ rejection, which can right. happen sometimes with new concepts. So it's really, you know, paying a little bit more to make sure that, that you know, everyone's agreeing on these new ideas and that, that they're sticky and that people will adopt them. Yeah. Absolutely. So I don't know. I mean, what would, how would you describe what I did? Yeah, no, I, I would say very much along those lines, you know, you, you would get into the head of the, let's call them the end users or the client, really try to understand the DNA of what it is they were trying to achieve, why they were trying to. I, I always go back to sort of where your value comes in, and we'll talk about the data side of it later, but the why, you know, why are we trying to do this? Why are people, why do you want to encourage people to perform a certain way at work or do this at work or collaborate in a certain way? I feel like a lot of times, you know, all these little catchphrases and stuff are thrown out, mm -hmm. but people are just kind of checking the boxes and they're not necessarily then taking it and following it through. And I think the difference with the, with the way that you worked is you stayed on top of it kind of as it as the project progressed. And I learned, you know, to keep those, let's call them project mission statements or project mm -hmm. goals, you know, always at the beginning of a presentation. When I would start out a presentation that had a real robust workplace strategy component of it, you know, we always referred back to that and actually gave me ammunition as the designer to say, hey, everybody, before we start today, let's remember what the goals were of the project. And then we would go through the thing. And then the next time we meet, hey, let's remember again what those goals were, because it's very easy to go week after week after week and deviate almost instantaneously from those goals because people get caught up in the, you know, the, the budget and the day-to-day -day stuff. And obviously all of that is important. But you yeah. still can keep those goals as that narrative that that kind of is that line that's consistent throughout a project. And so that's I right. Think that and it helps. I think it helps the architects make decisions, you know, this way or that way. Well, let's go back to the to the narrative and and the 
the vision of this project. And, and it also is great for the clients, you know, as they sell the new concept, they ha- they should have a narrative, um, you know, the story to tell about why they did this. So you're right. It, it's, it's, it creates a, a path, you know, or some sort of foundation for everyone to, to go back to if things start to feel like they're going sideways. Yeah. And I'm not the kind of designer that, that, I never embraced the blank page. The blank page mm-hmm. staring in front of me was kind of meaningless. You know, there were no rules, there were no nothing. It could just, anything could happen that never really excited me. Um, I like the constraints. I like the reasoning behind things. I like that these are the goals. This is what the client needs. This is, or the aesthetics or the functionality or whatever it might be. The more constraints in a sense, or the more um, the more reasons as to why certain design moves are being made, to me as a designer made me feel like I was actually accomplishing something and I could get to a solution or a series of solutions or a series of ideas a lot faster than telling me, hey, you know, I don't know what I want. You tell me what I want kind of thing. That doesn't kind of help anybody. You know, I guess yeah, there's some I, out there. I that agree. Does, I, but... I feel like it's very humbling, you know, the, to, to, to sort of say to yourself, I'm not, you know, that's maybe the other, the other problem with the history of architecture is that w- we are not the lone genius, you know, and and the vision shouldn't just sit in our own head. I mean, the best ideas I think that I've ever had are come out of just sitting and asking questions and then listening to the responses and starting to connect dots or say, you, you know, oh my gosh, that's such an amazing insight that like that inspires us in this yeah. completely new way that we could never ever have come up with on our own. So yeah, I think if if it if if people still don't believe in the idea of listening to <laughs> to your your users and doing user research and you know having conversations, it's like it's actually a creative valve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, f- for the team to like to really inspire new ideas. Absolutely. So so in thinking about workplace and office, um, I was I was kind of reminiscing. I think. Ever since I started working, especially on the, you know, when, when it came to interiors, um, you know, I've been doing this 25, 30 years probably at this point, and um, there's always been a document that whatever office I worked at, and we even have it right now, a document that is the office of the future. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. this is what it's going to be in the future. I don't know when that future is. Is that future mm-hmm. now? Is it is the future 10 years from now, 100 years from now? I have no idea. But there was always this document. And it always seemed a little kind of hokey to me that uh, this we're going to predict. But, you know, I guess... Uh, my first question on the office is a is a is an honest one, and I, I don't know what the answer is because I struggle myself. But but will the office ever truly be the same post COVID? You know, and and you know, in reading kind of what you've written, you know, you talk about you know revolutionary change, and and was this the revolutionary change COVID for the office? Well. I think, I mean, I, I think it was a, it's a time, first of all, it, it pushed, pushed people's, uh, you know, kind of the naysayers and um, people who are more hesitant 
into doing something that they didn't think was possible. So I think it really reset people's expectations <laughs> of like, well, we couldn't, we could never only rem work remotely or we could never work distributed or hybrid. And, and I think, you know, you can, people can do things that are really hard and, and a lot of, I mean, we're talking about knowledge workers, but a lot of knowledge worker organizations were able to do that and figure it out. And so I think there's something really inspiring in like, you know, human ingenuity um, to kind of figure it out. Uh, and I, you know, I love, I love the quote, you can, you can act your way into new thinking. That's much easier than thinking your way into new action. Um, and so p part of like my belief is there's like, you know, there's the thinking and the, you know, the document, but more importantly, just start doing something. And so I feel like the pandemic pushed us into doing something mindsets. Um, but, you know, I also dis despise kind of the, even the term, the future of work, but that's what people know that term. Um, I, I just, I like to think about, you know, new ways of working, new models of working. Um, like how, how can we push the boundaries to kind of really challenge, challenge ourselves? Like, why do we do things a certain way? Like, is there a better way? So I don't know if I would call it the future of work. Cause yeah, I feel like a little bit like a snake oil salesman, <laughs> you know, a lot of people walk around and talk about that, but I think um, to me, what, what's, really exciting about this is it's a chance for us to reset in a more organized way, you know, the work experience transformation as we have a bit of time to really think about it and plan for it and potentially even test and pilot new ideas, but it's still really hard. And you can see a lot of mindset slingshotting back to the nostalgic of, you know, before COVID times. And I just wanted to go back to the way it was, um, so I think part of me thinks I was using this metaphor of, um, have you ever traveled abroad, you know, like for a semester or mm -hmm. been somewhere else for a while? So it was like, if, if, you know, if a class of 10 kids went to France for the year and they came back, you know, two of them or one of them would be like, I'm moving to France. I am going to live in France for the rest of my life. They would be a total convert to this, like totally out of the world experience. And then there'd be like the middle pack that would be like, you like come back and they're like, I love baguettes. I love, you know, lattes. I love croissant. And they do that. And they maybe like be wearing berets, but over time they'd sort of like, you know, maybe the one thing they kept was like, I love croissants and a good cup of coffee. And then the, the like, you know, there's a couple at the bottom that are like, I just want a hamburger. And I feel like that to me represents what's going to happen with like a post COVID time of like, there's going to be people that went to the extreme. There's going to be the middle pack. And then there's going to be a couple of laggards who are just like, just give me what I used to <laughs> know. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes perfect so, sense. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be, you know, it's not an all or nothing. It's just going to kind of extend this long tail of variety of work experiences. Mm -hmm. The thing that to me is really interesting is what I was doing after I left HLW, which was at WeWork and really taking on this attitude that work, especially the workplace is really an experience design that can be productized 
and thought of like at a system level. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so, it's about the, the design and the physical space and the aesthetic, but it more importantly, it's about the activation of that space and the hospitality and the curation of events and community. That's what's really interesting and important. And as well as like how technology can support you. And I think people are kind of starting to realize that, but they don't quite have the language and words for it. But if you think, you know, I always described, I don't think people go, well, you and I might go to Disneyland just to look at the architecture, right? But most people are there to have experiences and encounter the parades and the characters and go on rides and eat food and shop. That's a curation of experiences. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's how we have to think about work too. It's a venue for things to happen. Um, and, and if you want people to come back in a curated way, you know, and you want to create that serendipity, it's, it's maybe happening naturally because people are like running into each other in the hallways, but think about all the things that start to activate that. Is it food? Is it coffee? Is it events? Is it the way, um, people are, are bringing you together, you know, in new and interesting ways. So I, I think that's to me what I'm really interested about in terms of how the work experience will evolve Yeah, is um, it's that it's p- people will think of it as, as a, as an event or a kind of a curated experience. I think rather it has than to. a kind of like an expectation that we'll go there or we won't go there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it has to, especially as there is a hybrid kind of situation, right? Where people, I I don't see, I know from my own firm, I don't see us going back to five days a week. Mm -hmm. Um, I see it, we've always been flexible, but I see it as being, you know, even more flexible going forward. And even our new offices, that's the idea is to set it up. And, and it's funny that you say curate experiences that, that really is. And, and I would have loved to, you know, say to a bunch of different architecture firms, although they would never go for this, like, hey, let's all move into one giant office space together. And, Mm -hmm. you know, let's kind of see what happens in that experience. And yeah, we'll all have different business lines and we'll all do different things. But, you know, it would be kind of interesting to see how that how that plays out. And maybe there's some something new from an experience level that that comes from there. But so well, that actually that that reminds me of something. when when we were at HLW, HLW was doing um, delivered on YouTube, uh, the YouTube creator space yeah. in LA and New York. And I don't know if you were part of that project, but yep. um, I just thought that that concept of a place for creators was so interesting um, because of that idea of it's pulling people from all different you know, they're not part of a same business. They're their own creators. They've got their own things going on and you're pulling them into a place because of some sort of specific tasks they're trying to accomplish or resource they're trying to check out, you know, or like booking a space for a certain amount of time. But when you come together, you're getting inspired and it's kind of this, like this unbelievable energy. And I, I, I remember giving a lecture on like YouTube creator space 
is the future of work. Like it's a very specific, like it's a place for something specific to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and you think about your own, I think you have a technology lab. Yeah. Right. And you could say like, that is now the heart, or maybe it already is like the heart of our work. Like we come together to, to accomplish something very specific. And then around that other things are happening. Correct. You know, you may go off over here and over there to do something, but, but maybe you come together and you say like, we come we, you know, this is really important for us to come physically together when we're in this lab Yep. and other things can be done in, you know, more dynamic ways. And that's exactly how our new office is structured. It really is. The lab is truly the centerpiece physically and exactly from a process point of view is the center of the office. And that is why you're coming to the office that, and the, I always say, you know, uh, People come to the office for, you know, they, they work for money, purpose, or honestly, to even just be around other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we've got to somehow capture that in even in an architecture office and, 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 and bring that forward. And I worry, you know, there's something I wanted to ask you about, you know, I guess two questions, you know, what is a successful company culture to you? Mm-hmm. And then can companies build a successful company culture virtually? So I will mirror back what clients have been telling me is important to their culture. Um, you know, I spent some time studying this uh, at, at WeWork. I mean, in all my, in all my yeah. parts of workplace strategy, but I think right now um, people are really talking about a sense of trust and belonging, like I matter, I belong here, and I feel that, uh, a sense of authenticity and inclusion that you really, you, you can empathize and understand where I'm coming from, and that you've clearly, you can see the world through my eyes, um, and you're, you're creating equal opportunity and equal experiences for me. Um, and then I think there's a second tier, which is uh, well, I would say that's, I think those are the, you know, cu- culturally speaking, there's a, a kind of a, um, this is a place where I can grow and learn. Um, and there's a kind of exchange, there's like a value exchange program going on. So I'm going to teach you things and therefore, you, you know, you might teach me things like a kind of giving mindset. Uh, versus like a taking mindset. Right. Um, and yeah, I think those are really, really the important things. And I absolutely think you can, you can do it virtually. Mm. You know, I think um, there are tons of examples of collectives and communities on are completely virtual and online. You know, you look at all the like Wikipedia contributors and it's a, you know, it's a really strong, sense of community and belonging and trust. Um, but I'm sure none of those people have ever met. So I think, I think the most important thing for me when I'm building teams or working with clients is that we we feel a sense of, um, authenticity and community first and foremost, like we feel like we're together for a reason. And then second to that, like there's some kind of structure of, um, like, uh, maybe, you know, hierarchy or a sense of like relationship of like, you are me to like, you're, you're my boss and I'm your employee. But I think that's a lot less important than to like, are we in this together? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Oh, um, and that's a hard so thing I, to do. I think it's, it's hard, but I think, and I think the other, so my other issue with architecture education is that we don't learn management um, and people go to school for management. Right, <laughs> and exactly. so we don't, we don't study organizational design or strategy. We don't understand management. We don't understand mentorship. Um, but all of those things are really, really important um, when you think about, you know, the motivation behind why people show up and they want to work with you. And those become really, really important. Um, and you can't just rely on like osmosis through through space, you know, through experience sitting close to me when you're yeah. in the same when you're not in the same space. So people, I think, really need to step up their their sense of their understanding of um team dynamics and organizational structure and, and, and motive, like people motivation in a virtual world. Interesting. Interesting. So what, what you talk a lot about data-driven design, Mm -hmm. what is that? Can you define that? And then what, what kind of companies um, use that in your experience and, and how, how do they, I, I guess my question is, what do they get from that in terms of space? and, and, um, you know, design. Yeah, I think, um, you know, so there's different kind of data. There can be qualitative and quantitative. There can be broad data or deep data. Um, and in, in my practice, uh, you know, and I think the best strategy uses mixed method gathering of, of information and data. So data is like the lowest part of the equation because it's just a bunch of facts and figures. And then you're trying to build insights out of that data. So what does this mean when we put two things, two kinds of sets of data over on top of each other? Um, do we see something like people are saying one thing in the survey, but they're saying something else in focus groups. So mm. that's an interesting insight. Um, and then on top of insights, you're trying to flip that and say, well, now what should we do about that? You know, how can we turn that into, into concept and how can we turn those concepts into sort of actions and goals? Um, and that helps, or, you know, I think the, the, the organizations that uh, really respect data and insights are those that probably have a really high ENPS net promoter score with employees and, you know, with customers mm-hmm. um, because they're really interested in listening to the voice of the customer and the voice of the employee. They probably have a lot of empathy and understanding. Um, they probably also have a lot of money. They have probably a really mm-hmm. good product or service to begin with because they have the time to pause and say, I really want to listen. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, you know, that holistic vision of if like we take care of our people and our customers, they'll take care of us. Uh, and I think that, so the data is used again to kind of set like higher, higher order priorities. It can be um, a way to, to understand like how much of what and where and when and why and how. And then I, the, the other part is it sets um, goals for data tracking, which is really important if you're thinking long-term about uh, is any of what we're doing making a difference? Mm. So you want to start to, you know, you want to set a baseline of, well, here was our um, employer net promoter score, or here's how much space we had, or here's how much 
space people used. And then we tried to apply these new principles and did any number change as a result. And because ultimately someone should be telling someone my work made a difference. Right. Right. <laughs> you should be telling yourself that. Right. So I think that's where a lot of clients, uh, maybe they lose focus and energy is to continue to track that information. But if they do, they can tell really interesting stories to themselves, you know, that can and, also feed into culture, right? Because you yeah. can, you can uncover things about, you know, some of that data that speaks kind of to the intangible things as well in, in your culture, right? Maybe underlying things or overarching things that you had no idea that was something going on in your company. And then you can exploit is not the right word, but, but use that to then, you know, do something else with, especially on the design end. But how does all this data drive design in your mind? Uh, I mean, it just, it, it creates, <clears throat> so it, it creates evidence to do something different. Okay. You know, at a leadership level, I think a lot of times leaders are, are looking at a financial bottom line or an effort or, you know, a status quo things are fine from my perspective. And so to move the needle on, like, we should be doing something different. Data tells an evidence-based story of things are not okay the way they are. Mm -hmm. um, or we could be doing better. And that's either against yourself. You're saying, you know, um, it could be people aren't satisfied, space isn't efficient, um, people aren't using it the way we want, um, people aren't showing up, we're spending money on things that people aren't showing up to, um, let's try something different. Uh, and then to, uh, you know, back to the employees, you're saying like, we heard you, like, this is a testimonial, we got you, you know, like, mm -hmm. I think it's a feedback loop of thank you for your time. Um, and, and again, you know, it's like, you told us this and this is what we made of it. So it's again, ratcheting up of like, you're not just mirroring back to someone, which I, you know, that's my big pet peeve. And in synthesis is like, we're not just like bundling everything we heard and putting a report. We are trying to ratchet it up and, and turn, you know, facts and figures into insights. What does it mean? An action. Um, yeah. And, and, and like, what is actionable out of that? Therefore we should be doing these things. So in that case, it's sending that to, you know, are working with the architects and the designers who are ultimately executing on a design or community managers who are executing on an operational model to say, what do we do with this insight? What's the action to take? Like, how do we fulfill that need that, you know, that, that unfulfilled need. So it's, I think it goes, it goes to, to leaders up and it goes to designers out to say sure. like, let's take care of the information we found. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you went out on your own and yes. you started your own company, Thinky Space. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about that. Thinky Space is is a, as I mentioned, is an insight and innovation practice. And really at the end of the day, it's me working really closely in advisory roles with my clients on all of these things, but more deeply embedded um, into their practice on an ongoing basis to deliver on work experiences, um, but more broadly, customer experiences. So if you think even of, as a workplace, um, 
as a as a delivery for the customer and the customers and the employees. Um, what I found is that I'm framing a lot of things in terms of what is the voice of the customer, what does the customer need, and how do we design an experience around those needs that's better than today? Hmm. Um, and what does success look like? So does it mean like um, better experience or bringing a more widely diverse and kind of customer to the table? Um, what are the pain points they're having? And I think the unique perspective is my deep expertise is space, but I also understand uh, team dynamics and organizational design. So the internal like workings, uh, operational, hmm. the operational side and community management side of things, as well as technology integration, what, te what technology can do. So when you bring all those things together, you know, you're really starting to study a whole experience um, and and all the touch points that are required to make that experience better. So some of my clients are workplace, and now I have clients that are a cultural institution. So we're looking at visitor experiences, both physically and digitally in the museum space, which is really, really exciting um, and lovely to work on something other than, than, than workplace. workplace. <laughs> I'm sure. And, and, yeah. and ultimately, you know, if everything moves more towards the hospitality side anyway, I think you'll find a lot of crossover between the two that can come back into the workplace side. Yeah. And the, and the thing I think is what's really fun is obviously working for yourself is very fun because you're on your, your own boss, but I'm doing all of the work virtually and remotely. So I kind of feel like maybe I'm in some way, a, a like a, a a trusted advisor that's third party mm -hmm. that is sort of like a head in space that can be called upon. Um, but I'm using all of these great techniques like Mural, um, you know, and, and the Google Suite, and a lot of great technology that's bringing Slack, you know, that's bringing people together in a collective way to collaborate virtually, which feels even more equitable than doing in person somehow. So I'm, I'm trying to like experience the other side of work, which is, you know, and really strengthen this argument of like, you can build strong ideas and strong teams virtually. Um, but I also love, you know, I love placemaking. I love in-person experiences sure. as well, but a lot of it is really people coming and saying, I don't know. I have something's not quite right. I have a problem can you help? And it's really jumping into that thinky space and saying like, let's sort it out. Let's like create a roadmap. Let's shore this up into, into kind of a scope or engagement that'll get you, you know, some more clarity in your own head of like, what's the problem. So I, it sounds like a lot of consultants speak, but um, people, I don't know, clients seem to be happy. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it's amazing. Um, I, I feel like we should hire you to help, uh, help organize our, uh, our company as we grow. You know? Yeah. Well, I already figured out, I, I, I did a quick read of you and I already figured out your space strategies. So. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think your, your practice is also really interesting in that you're, you know, what I, I find really fun and fascinating and exciting is is that you're really taking on the idea of technology and i think you know more than like vr and ar the point is to get to 
how do we do immediate and more direct feedback loops and iteration in real time? Exactly. Which, um, you know, and kind of, and like take on aspects of industrial engineering, industrial design, and think from like these very small body, you know, like bodies in space ex experiences, which, you know, um, the term body storming, where you're really trying to act out the experience. So I don't, you know, for me, it's like, it's, it seems very performative and exciting that you're saying, you know, it's not about these big concepts and big ideas. It's really like, let's start with a person in space. And how do we make that feel really immediate is, is through this, you know, you found the technology, um, but really trying to figure out how to like use technology to advance the process in ways that felt like slow or heavy. Exactly. That's the way I interpret or, or what you're doing. A hundred percent. It's exactly what we're doing. And the technology is sort of a, another tool to get there, but it is about the process. And, and as you said, you know, it's, the one thing that that bothered me about the traditional process was the wasting of time, right? That you yeah. would do things on purpose to show a client, hey, I tried this even though I know it didn't work. And I, I couldn't stand that. It just seemed like a total waste. And that's why you, where you said it was heavy and that kind of mm -hmm. things. Those are exactly the, the things that we were trying to avoid and getting into design from day one, not sort of talking around it and around it, but actually getting in and, and the experience of a person. And I think you and I had talked about this at one point, you know, there's no drawing that I can do that shows what a chef is going to see when he bends down and he looks across underneath a bunch of hoods or, you know, what the outside of a building is going to look like when I'm actually the sidewalks five feet below the entrance. And actually when I look up, all I see is the ceiling on the inside, right? So those are all experience things that you can get from the technology. They're simple, but they, they give you a better space um, ultimately in the end for you. So, so yeah, well, they get, well, they, they make it function better. They make the user happier. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, there's all sorts of great reasons to do it that way. The one thing I was going to ask you too is, you know, one of the things that, you know, if you take a product, a product innovation mindset, um, the other thing I love about that mindset is the idea of agile practice. So thinking of like design in a matter of sprints and, and like rendering a concept like with more clarity over time, at, like as a kind of like from lo-fi to hi-fi, which is kind of like architecture, but has a slightly different mindset, which is, you know, you're trying to, you know, do a two, like, let's say, you know, two week sprint on a certain topic or rendering something clear and you like focus really intensely on that. And then you move on to the next thing versus like we're in SD, we're in DD, yes. we're in CD, we're in CA, which can... It, it, in any case, like we, we took that on at, at uh, WeWork and it was, it was really, really uh, gratifying and satisfying as a, as a methodology um, because there's a kind of uh, a, a different cadence and momentum with the clients as well. You kind of like, you can, you can like clamp on down on certain things Um but also just this idea of like, we have a long list of things to do. What are our top priorities and what gets backlogged? Right. Um, and I think for young designers that felt like 
like refreshing and more applicable than I'm a junior designer. And so I do junior designer things. things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but I was thinking like with your kind of, you speed up the the feedback loops, sprints could, I don't know if you, you design in that way, but just the, the scrum and agile way of designing could be a really interesting methodology to apply. And try to get away from that very linear process. Exactly. That's, 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 right. that's spot yeah. on exactly what we do. So, so last question, uh, you know, what, what's the one thing um, you want the audience to remember about you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can love architecture, but you don't have to be an architect. And I, you know, I, I mentor a lot of students on this concept because I think it um, there's something about when you when you go to school to be an architect, and then if you decide that's not what you want to be, it you you feel people can feel really guilty about it that they're letting go of something they invested a lot of time in. But I think the way the way architects are trained to think in terms of systems. Um, and layers of information and see the world, you know, and appreciate the world. It's a, it can be applicable to many different things and you have to find your own passion in your own way. Um, and, you know, and if you express that to everyone you meet, you will be successful because people ultimately want to help other people be successful Yep. as long as they kind of see your own authenticity and passion, what you do. And so I'm grateful. I kind of, was able to do that for myself, but it took many years to figure that out. But um, yeah, I think, you know, there's a place for everyone in, in, you know, who people who are very passionate about architecture, but it doesn't mean you have to be a licensed exactly. architect. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, yeah, to be on the podcast. You. I really appreciate it. We could probably go on for another hour. <laughs> um, so to see and read more about Liz, um, check out her LinkedIn page. Um, which is Liz-Burrow. And then for Thinky Space, um, you have a website, thinkyspace.com. Yep. And uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Really great to talk to you. You too. <laughs>